All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks weekly podcast. We will uh, go without a Newmarkers Newsmakers this week. We're going to go right into our interview. I had a great conversation with Modisim Sarhan. He is the CEO of Elixir Medical. Modisim has been involved in the vascular space for uh, over two decades. Uh, he was at Guidance, involved with stent design there, Created, uh, co-founded a company, Aventech, sold that, and then founded Elixir in 2005. Uh, Elixir has been at this for a while, but he's got a great arrangement with the uh, Invis Group investors, and uh, he is uh, convinced that Elixir is developing the next iteration of devices, of implants, that will be used to help previously occluded vessels remain open. So we obviously talked about that later in the podcast. Earlier in the podcast, we talked a great deal about his career, what uh, led him to MedTech, how he uh, initially started at in the stent space, uh, some opportunities that were presented to him that uh, maybe were initially daunting, but he, he took on the challenge and look where he is today. So lots of great lessons for folks in varying parts of their MedTech career. So I'm grateful for Modisim for taking the time and for sharing his stories. Before we begin, I did want to remind you that Device Talks West is happening on October 18th and 19th. We uh, will be kicking off the, uh, the two-day event with an interview with Julie Tyler. She is Senior Vice President at Abbott and Head of the Vascular Group. So uh, speaking of vascular, looking forward to that conversation with her to understand where Abbott is headed in this space. Of course, we'll have keynotes from uh, Imperative Care, from Intuitive, from Johnson & Johnson MedTech, and a lot of great participation from Stryker, Boston Scientific, Medtronic, Dexcom, Abbott, Moon Surgical, and many, many more. So lots of great companies will be presenting there. Uh, looking forward to uh, having our West Coast Device Talks contingent represented there. We had a great time at Device Talks Boston. We packed that house, and I'm looking forward to doing that at the Santa Clara Convention Center as well. So you still have time to uh, secure our early bird rate. It is $395, $395. You're not going to get a better deal for a healthcare conference of this quality. We'll have senior leaders there from every aspect of medical device industry, so it'll be a great opportunity for you to not only improve your skill sets, but to expand your networks. So go to devicetalks.com. You don't need any special codes. You register now. You'll get in for $395. It's $300 less than the full price. So definitely worth committing now. It's going to be a great two days. I would love to see you there, and I would love to see you save $300. So again, go to devicetalks.com to register for Device Talks West, which is happening on October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. All right, with all that said, last message, uh, please join us this Tuesday. It'll be our last Device Talks Tuesdays of the summer. We'll pick it up again in late August, which I know is technically still summer, but it's closer to Labor Day, so we'll say it's inching toward the fall. But uh, please join us on uh, Tuesday at 4 p.m. Go to devicetalks.com for information about that great program. It'd be great to see you there as well. All right. Let us get this conversation going. Once again, I spoke with Modisim Sahan, CEO of Elixir Medical. 
Well, Modisim Sirhan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's going to be exciting to uh, catch up on Elixir's story and I think more broadly cover the state of vascular support, drug-eluting stents, whatever you want to call them. I know you have a different term for your product. But uh, before we get into that space where you've had a lot of experience, I'd love to find out what your first job was in medtech and what drew you to that job. I know you ultimately worked at Guidant, and I'm sure you'll say wonderful things about Guidant because everybody does. But what drew you to the medtech sector? What drew me to the medtech sector is uh, I grew up uh, with a, a keen sense of curiosity about the human anatomy and physiology. And I really wanted to understand more about it. And I thought the path to do that is through surgeon, to become a surgeon. And then later on, I found out that there is actually an engineering discipline called biomedical engineering that you can actually develop and innovate with so many different devices and means to improve patients' outcomes. And I decided to, instead of becoming a surgeon, to go through uh, the discipline of biomedical engineering and became a biomedical engineer. Interesting. My first job, yeah. Was your interest in surgery, was it the, the technical, the almost like a craftsman sort of, I uh, want to do this and fix that? Or was there, I, I imagine there was some, I wanted to do good and help people as well built into that. But what was the primary driver? It was the ability to go in into a patient body and investigate what is going on there and being able to fix it. And when I discovered you could do that with a lot more different ways of doing it on the device side, enabling surgeons at the time, because interventional cardiology was not a mainstream yet, I thought that is a lot more interesting approach to doing it. This isn't just a cover story because organic chemistry was so hard? (laughs) I actually, the funny part is I took organic chemistry, I took anatomy, I took a lot of the uh, pre-med courses, and it was an eye-opener. I still remember the first day where I took anatomy And I thought it went well until I went to the cafeteria to have lunch and I could not eat. I could not eat. (laughs) And and, and then you starve and then life goes on and you eat. So you settled while in college on a biomedical track? Yes, I actually uh, did uh, a dual degree undergraduate biomedical electrical engineering. And I um, went first to Purdue and it was uh, in the E division. And, And at that time, Biomedical was an interdisciplinary major. It did not have its own department. It was either under mechanical, electrical, or chemical. So I studied there for two years, and then I moved to USC, where I did dual degree major in biomedical electrical. And my first master's was in engineering management. And then I went to University of Texas Southwestern and UT Arlington, a joint program, uh, master's in biomedical engineering. And then I said, that's enough. It's been six years, and now it's time <laughs> to uh, to do the real thing. I know everything there is to know. Just a little personal note: I'll be uh, I'll be in West Lafayette, Indiana, next month, dropping my son off at Purdue for his freshman oh, year. God. So, in the engineering program, there was an, an amazing restaurant there. It Tell was, me, uh, a Greek a Greek restaurant that had the best Greek food. If it's there, <laughs> it is worth going and stopping by and enjoying. Uh, you'll have to you'll have to tell me afterwards. We'll definitely go looking yeah. for it. So yeah. fantastic. So what was your first career opportunity in medical devices? My first career opportunity was working for a company called Advanced Cardiovascular System. It's okay. one of these early pioneering and interventional cardiology companies. The environment there was incredible. Entrepreneurial spirit, teamwork, 
uh, hard work, the leadership was fully engaged, visible, accessible. And so it's the best possible outcome for someone coming out of college to experience these amazing experiences. And after my first year, I realized this is the area that I want to continue my career throughout my career with, which is the cardiovascular. There's about 200 million patients that have uh, coronary heart disease in the world, and the opportunity to make an impact in their lives would be tremendous. And I decided that's what I wanted to do. I'd have to think that there's, uh, I never really considered it before, but the vascular space has to be, has a lot of uh, interesting qualities to it in that you're dealing with a, sort of a known structure within the body. It's more of a physical challenge, perhaps, than a biological challenge. Maybe I'm, I'm dumbing that down too much, but is there a unique, what, what did you find that you liked about the, the vascular system? And is it different from other medical device systems or, or, or specialties that are out there? So if you look at if you look at what is intervention in general is it's using the the body arteries and veins as conduits to reach to the target organ that you're trying to fix and usually the fixing is either opening up an occlusion or patching a hemorrhage and as a result of that you're able to pick and select an artery that would lead to the heart so instead of having the invasive open heart surgery that is extremely invasive to, to a patient. Interventional cardiology, you snake this long tube that has a balloon on it, and you're able to go through the body and get into the area of the heart that is occluded. With x-ray, you'll be able to see that area. And you inflate that balloon. By expanding that balloon, you're able to reestablish the blood flow to that segment that has been deprived of blood flow. And then later on, the technology evolved to having stents where you put essentially a corrugated tube, expanding it by inserting it on top of that balloon, holding that artery to be open to resume blood flow. And that was remarkable. The market grew from 500,000 patients at one point to over 5 million patients today by being able to address resumption of blood flow to the vessel that is deprived from blood. It is interesting how innovation sort of begets innovation, where you first, you had the interventional tools, the balloons, and that led to, well, we'll need the stents, and then we need the drug-eluting stents, and then we'll go on and on and on. So it's been uh, it's been quite an evolution to, to follow. And you've, you've had a front row seat. Ultimately, you got over to Guidant. Was that, I'm trying to remember, was that an acquisition? of? So it, Advanced Cardiovascular System was part of Eli Lilly, in the past, right. several of these early interventional companies were part of pharmaceutical companies, and they were divested out. And in the case of ACS, was divested out and became public in 1995 as, as a guidance corporation. Ah. And what guidance encompassed was the interventional cardiology piece, as well as the CRM or cardiac rhythm management piece, and uh, it grew and made uh, inroads in patient care and in inventing and developing medical devices to advance patient outcomes. I was involved in the R&D side where I had the fortune to develop three of the balloon catheters that became the top selling catheters for the company and around the world. Uh, and I was fortunate to develop the first stent implant for the company, the Multilink 
then taking it all the way to commercial uh, release uh, outside the U.S. Um, so the, the experiences I've had were tremendous in the fact that I was able to see the progression of evolution of these technologies. But if you look at it, Tom, all of that focus was resuming blood flow to a tube. The world was looking at these vessels as a conduit only to conduct blood flow. What the world was missing is that this is an alive organ. It pulsates. It has chemical exchanges back and forth with the blood. And when you just put a stent there, you're rendering that vessel to become further deteriorated in terms of uh, its function. Yeah, I don't know if there's another, there probably is, but another area within medtech where every innovation was countering the body's response to the implant that was the previous generation of the implant. It seemed as if it was just a constant course correction with vascular tools. Does that happen in other specialties or do you, do you think it's been unique to vascular? It does. It does. And I think as you introduce a device or an intervention, it usually has side effects. And what you do in the next generation it's you reiterate, like for instance, with stents, uh, bare metal stents, by incorporating an mTOR inhibitor or an anti-proliferative, you're able actually to reduce the amount of scarring as a result of the injury that stent does to the, to the body. And therefore, you reduce the amount of neointimer hyperplasia that, uh, that takes place. I do believe other areas as well, they develop additional or modified technologies to address shortcomings of previous technologies. In this case, by adding or incorporating a drug on the bare metal sense, you're able to uh, enhance effectiveness in the first year of that implant. And, and given that you had a front row seat at the design and, and, and indeed a hand in the design of the bare metal stents, and now with the benefit of 2020 or more hindsight, do you look back and say we should have we should have understood like that that would have been the body's response to the to stents or was the feeling at the time like this is the solution this is this is the final version or, or was there a belief that this is a generational step the funny part is that when we were just doing balloon angioplasty with 30 percent stenosis or re-occlosure in the first year the world and the industry thought that that was it that was the <laughs> possible. i'm not kidding you Wow. And then when comes tense and, and the market grew by three, four times, the world also thought that, wow, you reduced it from 30% now to 15%. That is it. And then, you know, if, if you remember in, in business school, you have these S-curves where yeah. you have the growth part and then the maturity part, and then the next S-curve comes and takes it to the next potential for it, which is much larger than the previous but until then, you would think that this is the best thing in town. And, and then you, you come to a drug eluting sense where Johnson & Johnson, with their drug eluting sense, demonstrated you can actually reduce it to under 10%. And now the world is in awe again. And at the time, you always think that this is it until the next disruptive technology comes along. Right. That's fascinating. Well, I guess that's what makes it so much fun. So you were at Guidant, you uh, led the designs or the releases of the RX Perfusion PTCA catheter, and I'm looking at your bio, yes. and the, and yes. the pet, is it pet balloon technology? I should I should know these. This is like before I really started. I used to yeah, read these, yeah. and I never had to say them. Like, is it PET or is it PET? It's PET. Okay. So the, first, right, the first project was RX and Perfusion merged together 
And it was a tough project. That was the first time where, where I got uh, I got to know what a patent is, what an invention is, by wow. being able to reduce the profile in a unique way. That was the way I found out what a patent was. When I was told, by the way, this is an invention, it's a serious invention, and you're going to have a patent in your name on that. The, the next one was the company for seven years. We're trying to have a PET balloon, which is a very thin type of balloon that tend to perforate very easily. And therefore, they're not reliable to get into patients because the last thing you want is get into patient and they have a hole in that balloon. Uh, and so they, they created a heavyweight team at the time. I was summoned to the vice president of R&D. I was told out of all the people in the company, your name is on the top of the list that you could do this. We need it in one year and we need it to be done. And you would go pick your team. And I did pick the right team. Uh, we were five, six core team as a heavyweight. All of the disciplines report through the project leader. And at the time it was myself. And we actually were able to commercialize the first PET balloon, high pressure balloon for the company. And very, very, very exciting time at the time. Forgive me for asking this, but how, how old were you at this time? So I almost thirty years ago. No, no, no. Uh, yes, I was in my in my twenties, twenty two, twenty three. Wow. Um, and and <laughs> that was not after the the first few programs. I used to get to 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 turn about one or two projects, one a year approximately. I would get summoned to the vice president office with a specific mandate, which was a very difficult mandate, and execute it, commercialize it, and then I would get a reward with a promotion. And then the next something with another request, the next one would be a multi-leg stent. It would be the first implant for the company. And the rigor and discipline that I have with the, with the team that I, that I run is to be able to have the first implant for guidance. And that was a big deal because we did, wanted to make everything goes well and, and no excuses. And, 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 and we delivered on that as well. Is there any part of you, or do you recall any part of you being, I'm, I'm just a kid, like how am I, how am I being put in touch? Can I do this project? Or was there, did you have yes. no doubt that you were the right person? No, no. There, there, there are times where I am terrified. Like the first time <laughs> I was called, I was, I was an engineer called into the vice president, which is two to three levels above who I'm reporting to, telling me you'll be on my staff and this is what I need from you. I actually turned it down. My eyes and my mind wanted to do advanced development. So I said, okay, go and do your advanced development. And then I was talking to a friend of mine. He said, you are crazy. I'm the <laughs> vice president of R&D telling you you're going to be on his staff and he wants something from you. You get that done and then you go to your advanced development another time. And so I, call, I called him, Michael Clayman, his name, uh, a week later. I said, is the job still open? He said, yes. So when I started, I was terrified because, yeah. you know, it's, it's a, something that the company has not been able to put out for seven years, and it's not trivial. And then you have to get up and, and brush that concern and, 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 and do it. Get it done. And once you get it done, you get the confidence to do something further. That's amazing. So you ultimately would leave Guidant to start your own company, Aventech Vascular. What went into that uh, thought process? What was the timing of that, by the way? It was in 2000. Okay. I worked for ACS at Guidant, which is the same company, for 10 years straight, growing through the ranks of uh, R&D, reporting to the president before leaving. And at that time, the technology has matured in terms of offering. And I wanted 
I, I wanted to, to dream something much bigger in order to address the needs of, you know, we're, we're, we're still as an industry small and it cannot be that's all what it's about. So I left with not knowing exactly what I'm doing, but I wanted to know that I wanted to make an impact in interventional cardiology. And what I, what I started doing is developing advanced technology that can bring us in some revenue in order to offset part of the expenses, because most of the investors that I thought were going to come in and back the company disappeared. So it was a painful, painful experience to go through, but it was enlightening. I mean, the experience in terms of business, entrepreneurship, innovation, again, terrifying. But every time I find myself in a comfort zone over time, I kick myself out of that comfort zone. And then I say, why did I do that? Um, in this case, it was a big, hairy, audacious goal. We ended up working towards doing an advanced drug delivery from, from a stent with the goal of actually developing a bioresorbable scaffold in order to remove that whole implant later on and be able to free that vessel in order to reach higher grounds. And sometime in the first two and a half years of the company's life, one of the manufacturers that was also distributing our product in Japan, Goodman, decided that the company had enough products to become the core of their business in Japan, they made us an offer to acquire with the understanding that they'll allow us to innovate and grow the company to be able to address some of these unmet needs beyond the immediate product offerings. And this was the time, the 2000, 2003, it was not a, not a great yeah. time for, for fundraising or really exits. I mean, there was no IPO window to speak of. M&A was, was sporadic. So that's certainly a comforting outcome to have a company recognize its value. It was one of the biggest exits in medical devices at the time. Yeah. But it was 150 or so, 160? 165 million. And at the time, that seemed like a big deal. Now, I don't think it would register as high on, the, on, the, on our seismic Absolutely. scale. But back then, it was certainly a, a healthy exit. It was a very healthy exit. And after the acquisition of the company, they changed their mind. Well, Goodman was acquired by Nipro, and now it's Nipro, which has a market leadership position. It's a very uh, impressive company in Japan. But at the time, they've changed their mind from making it a global to just focus on Japan. Okay. Uh, and that's when I uh, retired from Avant. And then how long did it take you to found Elixir? Not, not very long. So it took me about a year. I thought that is what the <laughs> retirement's supposed to be. And you would think someone could be happy with that. For me, it was the most difficult time in my life. That's probably the first time where I kind of knew what a depression would feel or look like. Because mm -hmm. the, the amount of unhappiness I was in was tremendous. I'm a builder. I'm an innovator. And I like to do things that are meaningful. And so philanthropic is wonderful. Boards are wonderful but it's not as exciting as building and making a difference in a day-to-day's life of, of patients. So my, my investors, the Invis group, were sending me during that time term sheets to come back. And the goal is to disrupt the entire industry. And that is big, hairy, audacious goal, as you can imagine. And finally, a year later, I, uh, I said, enough is enough. There is no retirement. I don't think I'll ever retire in my life. I say this now. <laughs> um, and I came back into it. 
Invis was your, your backer for Eventech and, and they're your backer now for Elixir. How would you classify or, or characterize or describe that relationship? Is it they're your, your sole investor? I mean, it, it sounds great from some perspective. You're, you're not having to go out there fundraising, but are there challenges too? How, how do you describe the relationship? They're quite, they're, it's the most amazing relationship any entrepreneur or leadership or leadership team can ever dream about. And I genuinely, sincerely say that, and I'll, I'll, I'll walk you why. Their model, it's an evergreen fund, and they like to have a major impact in industries, not incremental impact. And they're patient. They're very patient. In, 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 and so the structure is usually aligned. You have to have a skin in the game. So I co-invested with them to find Elixir. So they don't just invest on their own. But for me, as a as a founder and CEO, I had to put a significant amount of my wealth into the company. Oh, okay. And everything is aligned in the relationship. And therefore, there is no disconnect in any way. It is 100% alignment. And the goal is a big goal. It's a big, hairy, audacious goal. The remarkable thing about them is it's not through good times. When when we went through rough times and every company goes through that, that's when you see the, the true character and that's when their support is is unwavering. Do you think, and I, I think I know the answer to this, but if had you been backed by more traditional VCs with a 10-year a partnership and a window where they need to produce some results, do you think you'd still be running Elixir today? Or is it because you had this unique relationship with, with Invis? I did not ha- I did not have to think about anything other than creating value and disrupting. I that did not great. have to worry about whether some of the board members on the table are interested to harvest their investment and sell it maybe to get a 3X or this X or whatever that is. I only focused on that. And you know, when you want to transform an industry, the path is not a straightforward. There is ups and downs, and Invis, with their evergreen uh, fund and visionary uh, leader, they specialize in doing so, and they they you don't have to think twice about that. So, typical VCs generally are looking for a shorter horizon for the return and more incremental type innovation to disrupt an entire industry with five million people being treated in one way, and you're eyeing at 200 million patients to be able to make an impact in them is nothing short of a mission impossible. And as you know well, Abbott, with their bioresorbable, invested several billion dollars in that. The whole world was looking at what's next and how we can do that. Elixir was one of them as well. And Elixir was just behind Abbott in terms of that development with a remarkable uh, product offering but it had shortcomings and it was not going to disrupt or transform the, the industry. We tripled down on that innovation path and Invis, when everyone else decided to exit or do something else, wrote a $50 million check and said, we had a deal, go do what we agreed to. And it's, it's, it's unheard of. That's amazing. So you're, you're, let, let's talk about, this is a great time to talk about your, your, your system. So Dynamics, drug-eluting coronary bioadapter system. Talk a bit about the technology. I understand it sounds like a stent, but I understand it's not a stent, and you can tell me why. So to give you a little bit of a background, stents cage that tube. And again, when you think of that tube, it's an alive organ that beats 
that has compliance, have adaptive flow. If you need more as you're running, that vessel expands, you get more blood flow. And then you have the back and forth communication with the blood, with chemicals, with drugs. And that is very important for the health of that vessel. All the technologies to date were either caging that vessel or causing it to renarrow again. But we're not really concerned about the health of the vessel. Bioresorbable scaffold technology came to try and address that and fail because it could not acutely have the same effectiveness as the standard of care of drug eluting stents. And it failed in randomized trials to show that it actually resumes that functionality of the vessel. So with a dynamics bioadapter, when we pivoted in 2000, around 2016, we wanted a no compromise where you are reestablishing the blood flow to the vessel, but you are able to restore the full functionality of that diseased vessel. Even though it's diseased, we want its ability to pulsate, its ability to have no compliance mismatch, its ability to adapt for flow if you need more flow, and being able to allow you to access the next evolution of effectiveness beyond anything reached to that to that stage. So in 2016, when you, you pivoted toward this approach, were you back at square one? Did you go back to the drawing board? Or was this, was this a secondary program that you had in the back burner that you moved to the front burner and you already had a vision of what you wanted it to be? We always at Elixir have three backup plans. So okay. we have our plan A, plan B, and plan C. Dynamics was already invented at that time during BRS, knowing the shortcomings of BRS and knowing that it's not going to carry us forward. We tried our hardest to resolve all of these issues, but they, they continued. But the learning that we learned that you can actually, what you need the strength for is the first three months. Beyond that, the vessel needs its own space, its own movement, its own function. And therefore, we learned that from the BRS. We learned the technologies of the polymers. We learned the stents from our classic DS that we commercialized to offset some of our expenses. When you add them together, we focused on the unlocking and of the implant itself to uncage that vessel. And therefore, a lot of those technologies that we've developed over the years were so critical for us to incorporate so that we can focus on the one variable of unlocking a metallic, which is the first time ever done in cardiology to unlock a metallic structure and not only unlock it, but maintain that support for that diseased vessel, unlike bioresorbable that goes away, unable to restore that, that diseased vessel is unable to restore its normal function by being able to have sustained support after you unlock the vessel we're able to achieve full restoration of the vessel function. It's remarkable. We had, it was exciting. We did it on the bench. We did modeling, animal studies, and the results were amazing. So let's, because this is a podcast, I just want to get detailed in the, in the description of what we're, we're talking about. I don't have an image of it here to draw from. So, I mean, the original metal sense were the metal cage straws that we put inside the blood vessel. Then that was changed to the drug eluting, where that would be coated with the drug that would prevent the reaction from the vessel. Then you had the bioabsorbable, which would disappear within the vessel. What, what does this look like? It sounds like it's a hybrid of bare metal and bioresorbable. In a way, it is a hybrid. You can look at it that way. But it's 
very thin strands, helical strands okay. that are so that like are a joined. It's like a spring, but are joined circumferentially temporarily. So they are axially connected. Circumferentially, they are connected only temporarily by a thin polymer. Okay. That polymer is resorbed in six months, allowing those three intertwined strands to unlock. These are embedded in tissue by that time, and the tissue allows with the pulsation that these strands to become offset or uncaged, un and therefore allowing from a circumferential point of view the full restoration of the vessel motion and function. Whereas stents and drug-eluting stents are a cage that you put into the blood vessel and it freezes that blood vessel because it does not allow it to move, pulsate appropriately. It's a nitus for all the events as a result of its presence. Yes, it's restored blood flow, but then it, it, it takes a toll on rendering the vessel dysfunctional over time that you have 2 to 3% annual non-plateauing event rates over time. So one out of five patients in five years have a major adverse cardiac event, and one out of two patients in 10 years have a major adverse cardiac events that have wow. a drug-eluting stents in their artery. So it's a big deal where 50% of the patients who receive stents have an event in which they have to do something else about it. It's not trivial. It's an unmet need. It's a huge unmet need. And Elixir uh, really dedicated its existence on making sure that we upgrade that standard of care for patients around the world. So how is this system, since it's not connected anymore and it's not a structure, able to provide that support? I guess what I'm getting from this is this really only delivers the support and the therapy, for lack of a better word, for the first year or two, and then the feeling is you don't need that support anymore, or does it still provide that support to keep the vessel open? Two different types of support. The first one is strength, where you really need it to be very strong. Because you remember, you're squashing all that plaque that have accumulated over tens of years, you're squishing it against the vessel wall, and you need to be able to get that to about 10% or less. After three months, the vessel remodels, and therefore the vessel itself doesn't need that cage to continue caging. Its presence actually uh, becomes an itis for events. And therefore, what you need is a safe mechanism to uncage and unlock the device. And that's where biology takes over, and biology is self-sufficient in healing its own self. But what is needed, what is still needed, is that accumulated that you shoved against the vessel wall needs to be supported by a structure. So the bioadapter becomes a background in the tissue, supporting that disease that have accumulated over the years that you've compressed against the vessel wall, allowing you to resume the pulsatility as if it's a normal vessel and allowing the communication inflow and outflow of that vessel to resume. Interesting. Let's talk about the status of the, the state of the program. You, you've, you've just this month, July, announced that you had uh, enrollment, you completed enrollment in your Infinity Sweetheart trial, which is a prospective multi-center, single-blind, randomized clinical trial. How long have you has this been tested in humans and, and what opportunity is this new trial that's just been uh, enrolled represent? So this is the fourth trial for Elixir on the bioadapter. It is the largest 
trial by far, 2,400 patients randomized one-to-one versus the standard of care in drug-eluting stents. And therefore, when you look at uh, uh, the meaning of that trial is, is continued evidence building. These type of trials, Tom, are trials that historically uh, companies like Johnson & Johnson, Abbott, Boston Scientific, and Medtronic would run. Not a small company at the scale of Elixir would run. Right. Finding ourselves in an uncharted territory where strategics today decided to move on into other areas, we had to take on that responsibility and conduct trial after trial, building upon the successes of each one into where we are today. The first two trials were mechanistic trials, heavy on imaging to understand the mechanism, the safety, the effectiveness. And then we run the bioadapter trial, which was a European-Japanese trial that will be the basis for our approval in Japan, where we conducted 445 patients, randomized one-to-one versus the standard of care with DS, with 100 patients, large cohort of imaging. The finding of that trial were remarkable. We met the non-inferiority endpoint. And numerically, for the first time, a technology actually looking better uh, than the standard of care. And when you look through imaging, I call it looking under the hood, looking at the engine, there's a day and night difference. One with the bioadapter where the vessel is fully restored, its motion, function, and then finding a novel finding of plaque. As you may know, when you put an implant, you further degrade the vessel function. And as a result of that, the vessel ability to clear that plaque doesn't happen. On the contrary, you increase that plaque progression, which is the nitus for secondary heart attack and tertiary heart attack. And whereas what we found with the bioadapter in the bioadapter trial is that for the first time in history, we are able to show plaque stabilization and regression in the patients that are most at risk for secondary heart attack. And that is remarkable because it's synergistically for the first time working with pharmaceutical statins to elevate the procedure beyond either device or pharma. Mm-hmm. Together, you can elevate into another level. So the, the, the Infinity Sweetheart is further evidence building on what we found with the bioadapter in order to move the bioadapter into mainstream in terms of adoption in terms of pushing it to becoming the standard of care for PCI. How have you been involved or familiar at least with trials like these for a couple of decades now? How, how have the trials today, how are they different from those done 10 or 20 years ago? Is the advanced imaging and, and the other visualization abilities, does that change how these are done? Has it helped you collect information faster, help you prove or disprove a point faster than before? The imaging is tremendous, and we believe the imaging for the future is here to stay because when you treat someone with x-ray and you're just looking at them in 2D, you're just looking at the flow dynamics or mechanics of it. When you're looking at imaging, it gives you the morphology of the artery. It gives you what type of plaque you get. Is it lipid? Is it calcific? Is it... what are the different, How? what is the size of that vessel? So it gives you insights into it to better treat and better outcome 
that will continue to evolve over the years uh, in, 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 in our mind. And that has been helpful because at 12 months with the bioadapter, with the 100-patient imaging cohort, when you look at the, the results, where the results are clearly superior, statistically superior in every category, including blood flow, including vessel restoration, including diameter stenosis at 12 months, including the plaque, uh, regression, uh, where you have superiority in every one of these metrics over the standard of care at 12 months, gives you an incredible insight at what's coming. One platform is leaving an artery in, an, in, in, in a normal fashion, despite the disease that it accumulated over the years. Another one is, is about to experience continuous significant events year after year. How important is this data? Not obviously the data is necessary for for regulatory improvement and for advancement, but for you, a lot of medical device startups for the, one of their scoreboards is raising capital. They know they're successful if they, if they if other investors have come in and said, "We think you're doing great. We want to give you money. Your valuation's going up. Whatever." It's it's a it's a way of measuring progress. You haven't really had that scoreboard until you're getting this clinical data. So it must be really, really encouraging and enlightening to to sort of have this clinical data coming through and to have the, the results that, that you're seeing? Is it, has it sort of changed the tone from the company? And was it hard previously to kind of keep moving forward without having any external affirmation? In an uncharted territory alone, yeah. it's very hard. Yeah. And there are times that you question yourself and, and, and what grounds you is your mission, mm-hmm. is to elevate for the sake of patients, the standard of care. It really grounds you. We continued and seeing our own progress was very reassuring. And our investors seeing it and and continuing their support, our key opinion leaders feeling that it's remarkable. It is what Elixir is doing. Those network of individuals may not be the whole world, but allowed us to continue in these uncharted territory. Let me tell you where that means today. With the results that we are getting, it is opening our eyes to the 200 million patients that have cardiac disease, a coronary artery disease, you have about 30 million plus individuals who have vulnerable plaque. These are patients who have plaque in their arteries are going to end up having a heart attack or an event at some point. Well, the technology, we know statins, once you have that plaque to a certain degree, will reduce the amount of lipids going in, but it doesn't really remove the amount coming out because the vessel is no longer functioning well. With the Dynamics Bioadapter, we're able to show by restoring that normal vessel function, not only statins prevent less lipid to go in, but now the vessel can flush things out, what is called an efflux of that plaque. And we've showed that with the imaging that we've done with the Bioadapter. Opens a 30 million patient population that today are not treated with devices, are treated with statins, but not optimal. And now with the combination of both, now you can elevate the standard of care beyond anything. There's 9 million people today, every year, that die from heart attacks. It's the single largest cause of death in the world. And therefore, with the bioadapter platform, now you can potentially see an avenue to help. And we're looking at trial design in order to do standard of care of statins alone versus standard of care with dynamics. And the goal is to show superiority of that. That is one area. The second area of chronic angina patients, these patients who have disease, but take 
medications in order to relieve the symptoms, but the disease is still there. We believe that if you're able to restore vessel function in many of them, the microvascular dysfunction and the microvascular resistance that can cause some of the issues in terms of that angina in some of these patients can be addressable. And so we're very excited. The most excited we've been on uh, uh, the future of where the platforms are going and the impact it would have on patients. Let's talk about the future a bit. So what does your path look like for, have you mapped out anything with the FDA? Do you have a sense of if things continue to go well, when you might have a commercial product? Yes. So the product is approved outside the US. We're filing in Japan. We're filing in Japan this month. We'll have approval in Japan before end of next year. The US FDA, they've been gracious to allow us a smaller patient sample size of 750 as a result of having large body of evidence with the sweetheart of 2,400. And we anticipate starting that trial in Q124. Uh, It's a much smaller trial than the typical 1,800 to 2,000 that devices have to go in the U.S. because of the large body of evidence that we're building. And so it's it's exciting for us. And it is equally exciting to see the new indications that the bioadapter opens beyond PCI. Interesting. And final question, when the day comes that you're you're fully commercial, what do you think the likely outcome will be? Is this going to be a company that you're going to build out a global sales force and sell these products yourselves? I'm sure that's what you're prepared to do, but is it more likely that you're going to be acquired by one of these global companies that already has that infrastructure in place? We're committed to doing the best thing we can do today independently. And and our plans, our commercial plans in Japan that will be direct in Japan, will be direct in Europe, and will be direct in the U.S. How that changes over time, we don't know. But today we're executing to be an independent company, making sure that the technology reaches globally patients around the world and upgrading the standard of care. Where to sell? Do you think you'd last more than a year as retired or you're a little older now? Maybe you're ready to take it easy, but maybe you're going to start another company. It may be a a topic of another discussion. We have (laughs) six disruptive platforms under the umbrella of Elixir. And some of them are in cardiology, like the TRX, which we are either reducing or replacing oral antiplatelet therapy by incorporating it on the device itself. It's okay. a breakthrough technology that we will release the results at TCT this year. And we have Lithics, which is a novel disruptive technology for calcium disruption to prepare the lesion. The three of these technologies between the bioadapter, TRX, and Lithics, we believe that will lead as a company the technology and innovation for the next 10, 15 years to upgrade the standard of care for patients globally. All right. Sounds like you've got plenty to uh, to keep you busy. So we don't have to worry about you getting bored. <laughs> I, I agree with you. Excellent. Well, this has been a fantastic story. I really appreciate your your frankness. Uh, you've, you've seen a lot in this space and uh, we're going to see a lot more from Elixir Medical. Thanks for, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Tom, for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks for joining us on the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Connect with us on social media. You can follow Device Talks on LinkedIn. 
You can find me there, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. You can follow Chris Newmarker. Chris, as in a new marker. Please do subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network. You'll get future episodes of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast, as well as Intuitive Talks, Striker Talks, Abbott Talks, Boston Scientific Talks, and we're working on some other great programs as well. So uh, make sure you don't miss any future great medical device conversations. Subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network on any major podcast application. And finally, don't forget to register to attend Device Talks West, October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Go to devicetalks.com, register now, save $300 off the final price. You'll get in for just $395. All right, folks, have a uh, great weekend and week, and we'll be back next week with another episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll